Uh, would you go ahead and take your seats in Titus, please? Look at Titus. If you'd open up your Bibles and follow along with me, I'd appreciate that. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, the acknowledgement of truth which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, our true son, and our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things that they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. But as for you, speak the things which are for proper, sound doctrine. That older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves are once... Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, 
we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. They're unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you or Tychius, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, I wanted to read that for a couple reasons. First off, one of the verses I'm going to reference later on here today is when Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, make sure that you read God's word. Not only that, but he says this. He says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. NIV says it this way. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. New living. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. I've always told you many times before, I think it's important to get the whole context. Before church, I timed myself. I don't know what I did here. It took three minutes, 53.34 seconds. Less than four minutes. I just want to put that into perspective for a second. Four minutes. Read the whole book in four minutes. Now, I don't say this to pick. And if it comes across that way, it truly is not my intention. We just read the entire book of Titus in less than four minutes. Do you realize how much time we have in the day for the reading of God's word? I mean, just think that down. If someone would come to you and say, well, how long do you think it would take to read the book of Titus? I don't know. That would take me a week. Four minutes. Please understand the importance of God's word. And when you read an entire book like this in a setting, it gives you the full context. We're going to chop this puppy up. You know, not literally. I shouldn't say that. Can't say chop up puppies. So um, we're going to chop this up, obviously over weeks, and break it down. But just imagine back during the time of Paul that if Titus received this letter, he would not have stopped and said, you know, I'm going to spread this letter out over a month. He would have sat down and read this thing. And probably, I bet you, as soon as he got done, I could just see Titus sitting back, taking a deep breath and saying, all right, round two, it's going again. I just want to encourage you with the reading of God's word and the reading of scriptures. It does not take as long as we think. I I think I did the math one time. To read the Bible in a year, you have to average 3.8 chapters a day. That's all, 3.8 chapters. Now, some of you that are quick to say, well, what about Psalm 119? Okay, there are certain chapters that are very long, and there are certain chapters that are very short. But 3.8 chapters a day, and you can get through the whole Bible in a year. just want to encourage you with that. I love hearing God's Word read it. I'm not an auditory learner. I'm a visual learner. So that's why I wanted you to have your Bibles out because some of you that are not auditory, you tune out. But you can follow along then at least. And I hope that blesses you as we do it. Book of Titus. Why are we doing the book of Titus? We did Titus four years ago. And so we're kind of doing a little quick again, but I think it's very, very important. And this is why. This is one of the pastoral epistles, Titus and Timothy. They're written to Paul's young protégés, young pastors that are having church issues and that are giving them wisdom. I have loved the book of Titus ever since I've been a pastor. I think this book, if I only had one book to teach through to anybody in any type of ministry leadership position, it would be the book of Titus. This book has it all. 
And we've spent a lot of times here on Wednesdays lately doing some end times things. We did Second Thessalonians, then we did the book of Jude, and then we did Habakkuk just to get some end times things. I want us to get back now to just the basics of the faith. This is what the Lord's really laying on my heart. Is just get back to the truth. Titus will teach us doctrine, it will teach us leadership, it will teach us church order, and it will teach us practical living it out. This is a powerful little book that's only three chapters long. And I hope you're as blessed by this as I am. And I'm really looking forward to this because it will set us as a church in the order of where we're supposed to be. Who was Titus? And interesting thing about Titus is Titus was a Gentile, which means that he was not Jewish. That's very unique when you start reading through the Bible. He was a Gentile. We know that from Galatians 2. He is described in 2 Corinthians as a partner and fellow worker of Paul. That's a pretty good compliment. He's called enthusiastic and eager. Another good compliment. He ended up being a missionary to Europe present-day Bosnia, Croatia. And that's not church tradition. The Bible says he actually went to those areas. I know a lot of time when people look at the Bible, when we talk about the gospel going out, we always just get ourselves stuck at Jerusalem. When you start reading about the gospel going out, in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, the gospel goes into Africa, it goes into Europe, it goes into Asia. It's spreading all over. So Titus here ended up being a missionary to what we call present-day Europe. He was a frequent traveling companion of Paul, and he was Paul's go-to man. He had Titus deliver letters to people, he had Titus deliver gifts to people, and he sent Titus to people to check in on them. So this man is quite the man, and I hope you're as blessed by going through this as I am to see it. I want you to see a brief little order here of what Titus will look like. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set and order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Set and order things that are lacking. We'll get to this a little bit later on tonight, but that phrase set and order is a medical term and it means that the body is out of joint. So that means they have a dislocated something. So all the pieces are there. They're just not where they're supposed to be. And so what has happened is this church has the pieces that it needs, but they are now out of joint. They're dislocated and Titus, I'm giving you this difficult job. Go to Crete and fix this. Crete's difficult. How do you know Crete's difficult? Jump ahead to verse 12 of the same chapter. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy guttons. 13, this testimony is true. Titus, that's your job, buddy. Go to the liars, go to the gluttons, go to the evil beasts. Set them in order. Now, here's the other problem that was happening. Verse 16, chapter 1. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. I think this is very practical for us today as a church, and I don't mean necessarily Harvest Fellowship, I mean the church in general. We profess to know God, but in works we deny Him. That is something I am just seeing so much of personally, here locally, and just throughout the world. How many people profess to know God? But if you look at their lifestyle and their actions, where is the fruit? Where is it? And that's a dangerous place to be. So therefore, Titus, verse 1, speak the things of chapter 2, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, and then jump ahead to verse 15 of chapter 2, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Titus, jump right into this. Correct them. Speak the truth. What is the emphasis of Titus? You're going to see a few different emphasis. Verse 3 of chapter 1, it's the word. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, through the word. This is something that I'm seeing here as time goes on. The importance of God's word. 
Just that's what it is. It's God's word. I am not saying worship is not important. I think worship is very important. Fellowship is obviously very important. And we can get down to the fundamentals of the faith or the idea of baptism. We just did a baptism a few weeks ago. Evangelism. All these things are important. But it's the word. The word. If you remember correctly, Jesus, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, did our heart not burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? God's word is alive and active. Hebrews 4. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Isaiah 55. It is not returned void. We can just go down the list. The word. And we need to preach the word. Sound doctrine, though. The truth of the word. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The acknowledgement of the truth. Nowadays, with the way technology is, you can find any teaching to back up any perspective or point you have. It's completely, utterly available. When I first got saved in 93, I know the internet was around, but the internet wasn't what it was today. You, you couldn't find the teachings that you could find today. You had to find some cassette tape. You had to listen to it. You had to order them. You had to do all this. Nowadays, you get on YouTube and whatever doctrinal position you want to find, you just look hard enough and you can find a position to back it up. You want a teaching that says that this guy is the guy to vote for? You can find a pastor that says it. You want a guy that says this guy? This guy can say it. You want a teaching that promises you pre-trib rapture? You'll find it. You can find one for mid and post as well too. You want to find one that says hell is real? You'll find it. You want to find one that says, oh, hell is just all mythical? You'll find it. You can find teachings to back up your sin as well, too. You can find quotes from great people that will back up anything you want today, and you can find that online anywhere you want by just typing it in. And this is why I think it's so vitally important, verse 1, that we speak the things of chapter 2, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. First time in a long time, I got a chance to go to one of those big bookstores. And I just went right to the Christian section. I just, I love it. Absolutely love it. All the different types of Bibles. I mean, there's like 25 versions of the New King James. I just love that type of stuff. You know, I told you last week, I was joking that I got a commentary that I'd just been wanting to get. First time in my life, I got a Bible cover. I got it right here. It was on sale. I'm so happy. I just, I loved it. So I was, in, I was in the theology section, the Bible section, and I, I literally could have spent hours in there. And then I went to the Christian living section. Well, that's the biggest misnomer I've ever seen. There was a lot of books in there that has nothing to do with Christian, has nothing to do with living. It has become this catch-all. And if there was somebody who was either very new in the faith or somebody who was just thinking about Christianity, and if they went to that bookstore and went to the Christian living section, I don't know how they could find sound doctrine. Now, there were some good ones in there. But for every good one, I don't think I'm exaggerating. There's at least five that would say, you know what, I'm okay with burning books. There's just nothing good in that. And it's become this big thing. I remember one time we were doing some door-to-door evangelism. And the guy that was uh, leading it up with us, he says, make sure when you start a conversation with somebody, let them know you're not Jehovah Witnesses. Because the only other people that seem to go door-to-door are Jehovah Witnesses. And what happens is they're going to see you and just assume that that's what you are. And from their perspective, they were, it was the Muslim community, because the Muslims are going to put Jehovah Witnesses and, and us under the same umbrella. Because it just kind of, well, why aren't you just basically all the same? There's a huge doctrinal difference there between us and Jehovah Witnesses. Do we understand these things? Do we understand sound doctrine? So that's the next thing you're going to see. Also, what does he push in this book? He pushes character. Verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Character of leaders. Character of ministry people. Do they have good character? They need to be called and they need to have character. You need to have both. 
That's what else he's going to push. And lastly, what he's going to push is the concept of idea of works. Works while looking for the return of Jesus. Take a look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Teaching us, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great Christ. That should always be in the back of our mind, is the idea of Jesus Christ is returning. That drives us on. And if that is not something that's not at the forefront of your mind, I would really, really encourage you to pray about it. The Bible promises you a crown for those that are eagerly anticipating his return. Have we forgotten that he's coming back? I've shared this line with you before, but it's from one of my uh, favorite songs. It was a newsboy song that came out in the turn of Jesus. Now we've come just very ho-hum about it. And one of the lines in the song is speaking to Christ, saying, I heard you're coming back again. When you do, could you bring me something from the fridge? Just this idea of, oh, you're coming back, great. I'll see you in a little bit. We've lost the passion. Christ himself is going to come back and eventually set foot on this earth and judge the world and set up a thousand-year kingdom. That's pretty impressive. Remember that the next time something goes wrong at work, with your car, with your health, and life, your checkbook, Jesus Christ is returning to set foot on this earth. So therefore, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So often when I run into somebody who claims Christianity, but they're so caught up in the things of this world, generally there's not a passion for souls, there's not a passion for the return of Christ. There's just not. Because if you have a passion for souls, and you have a passion for the return of Christ, anything that happens in this world, yeah, it's going to sting, yeah, it's going to hurt, but eventually you're going to stop and say, listen, people are dying and going to hell. Christ can return at any moment. Why am I getting worked up about this? I've got to keep my focus on that. So, works with the mindset of Jesus returning. But look at the emphasis of works here. Verse 7, chapter 2. We should have a pattern of good works. 14, chapter 2. We should be zealous for good works. Chapter uh, 3, verse 8, we should maintain good works. And chapter 3, verse 14, we should learn to maintain good works. We'll hit those verses as we get close, but you see an emphasis of works, 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 and works. Now, before you think he's preaching works by salvation, please look at verse 11 of chapter 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Saved by grace, not by works. And please also look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Titus, excuse me, Paul makes it very clear to Titus, yes, maintain good works, but realize works do not save you. I think that's very important as we go through this. So, we will emphasize doctrine, leadership, church order, practical living. There will be an emphasis on God's word, truth, character, works while looking for the return of Jesus while all remembering we're saved by grace. This is going to be a wonderful book, and I hope you're blessed by this, and I'm really looking forward to jumping into this. So with that introduction done, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. What an introduction. Now please note the way books, I should say, yes, books, letters were written back in Bible times. They were written on a scroll. Most of the time when we do letters today, we sign our name at the end. Okay? Well, that wouldn't have worked in Bible times. Imagine having a much longer book. Romans, for example, 16 chapters. You're going to roll that whole scroll out to, oh, it's from Paul. No, you put your name at the beginning. Because as you're unrolling the scroll, you see who it's from. Paul. 
So it's right there at the beginning for you. So that's why these books start out with Paul. Because imagine unrolling the scroll back 2,000 years ago. You find out first who it's from. Look at the description of how he describes himself. Bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle. That's a great title to have. It means literally one who is sent. It means a delegate. Handpicked by God for a specific purpose and calling. Paul had that. Met Christ on the road to Damascus. Got saved. Was called by God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Very deep calling, very important calling, and you see that being done. But it's interesting that he calls himself a bondservant first. You know, I, I think back to when you see a man wearing a lot of military honors. You're supposed to put the highest honor, the highest medal award at top. And you work your way down. Well, I think apostle trumps bondservant. But not in Paul's mind. What's a bondservant? Some of your translations may say slave. Some of your translations may say servant. I think bondservant is a good translation of it. I think slave is even a really good translation. Because if you just say servant... It can carry the idea of the butler walking around with white-gloved hands and, you know, looking all prim and proper. He's a bondservant. Now, the idea of bondservant, it's the lowest slave, bottom of the rung. But he's a bondservant, please note, of God. That's very important. Bondservant of God. A bondservant is somebody who gives himself willingly out of love to serve his master. He's not forced to. A bondservant willingly did it. It comes from the idea of Exodus 21. And what would happen is that Exodus 21 is this. If you were a Hebrew and you had another Hebrew, another Jew, you you weren't allowed to really own them. That was not allowed. A lot of people completely misunderstand what we call slavery in the Bible when you really study it out. So the Jews could not own the Jews. And if you had almost a servant, a slave, they were supposed to be set free at the seventh year. And so therefore, what happens is if you've been a slave of this master and it's time for you to be set free... And you stop and you say, I don't want to. I really love this guy. You could choose to be a free slave. You could choose to stop and say, in my freedom, I choose to become a slave to you. Exodus 21 says this, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and shall serve him forever. So after six years when I can be set free, I say, I don't want to. I love this guy. He'd say, okay, let's go before the leadership here of the community. We'd go and say, listen, he can be set free. He is choosing to do this. They would say, do you choose to do this? I choose in my freedom to stay a slave, and they would take me to the doorpost, put an earring in, and that earring would be a visible representation. So when somebody saw me, they would stop and say, that's a bondservant. He must have an amazing master. Because I chose to stay with him. A master that he could choose freely, a master that he loved. So by Paul calling himself a bondservant of God, he says, you don't understand, I love this. This is not a forced, this is not a have to. I am willingly choosing to give up all my rights and freedoms to serve God in all ways whatsoever. And Ephesians 6 tells us that we're called to be bondservants of Christ as well too. I don't know if they're still popular or not, but I can remember growing up as a kid, those little bumper stickers that said, Jesus is my co-pilot. You remember those? Now, if you have one on your car, don't get mad at me, okay? Because I don't think anybody here does. I've always been annoyed by those. 
that idea of Jesus as my co-pilot. No, he's, he's my master. I'm a slave. I, I have willfully given up all rights and privileges. I want to live here, but God has called me here. I want to do this, but God has called me to do this. I want to stay home and do this, but God has called me to do this. I am a willful servant of the Lord, not forced to, and I love him so much that I'm saying, pierce the ear, let me go out and serve him, and I'll do whatever he calls me to do. That's what it means to be a bond servant. So as you're reading through the introductions in Paul's letters and you see that term bond servant, understand the depth of it. That's something that the Jews would understand as they're reading through this. Maybe we have lost that a little bit here 2,000 years later. They would understand what Paul is trying to say and the very neat depth of that. Let's take a quick breather here real quick. Uh, anybody got any questions, comments about anything? And good go here. All right. Now, what are we going to find out here in verse 1? I want you to focus on three words. Please look at verse 1. You have faith, you have truth, and then you have godliness. Faith, truth, and godliness. It's important that it goes in that order. So, Paul is saying here, bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, I have been chosen by God. So there's a faith to this. This is what we believe. So that's why we use the term faith. It carries more than just the idea of believing in the unseen. This is a way of life. So my faith is based in truth. That's the next word. And remember, there's three truths in the Bible. Holy Spirit is truth. Jesus is truth. God's word is truth. Please remember that. So therefore, when somebody brings something up to you, compare it to those three things. So when somebody brings a new idea, and you say, that's not in the Bible, then it's not truth. Somebody brings a new idea about Jesus and you read through the Gospels and you say, your idea about Christ does not line up with the nature of Jesus that I read about in the Bible. Then it's not truth. If somebody brings a truth and they say, the Spirit led me. And you stop and you say, well, hold on a second here. That's, that's not what the Holy Spirit teaches. It's not truth. So please understand, Holy Spirit is truth, Jesus is truth, God's word is truth, and those are what we make our foundational based on. So when you have faith, which leads to truth, what's the last thing you're going to have? You're now going to have godliness. That means you're going to go out and live it out. There's many people in the world that want to be moral, but they're not basing that on any faith or truth. They can't do it. They can't do it. Do you remember back to your early American history, the great example of Ben Franklin? I think it was his 21 vices, if I remember correctly. He picked 21 areas of his life that he really wanted to work on, and he, he had the mindset that if he could just devote, and I can't remember how long it was, so many weeks to it, he could defeat that vice. And so he started with the first one, and he put all of his time and attention into it, and he defeated that vice. So then he moved on to the next issue that he had. But he found out as he moved on to the next issue, guess what happened? He started doing what he did the first time again. Can't do it. I always look at it as whack-a-mole. Remember the whack-a-mole game? You knock one of those little things down, another one pops up. That's the way it is. I can't be moral. I can't be good. I can't have godliness. I can't. The only way I can is through faith based in truth, which now then leads to godliness. And it always breaks my heart when I run into that person that wants to get their life cleaned up, but they don't want to do it in faith and truth. They're going to start some new program. They're going to read some new book. They're going to try really hard. And they may have a tiny bit of success. But the reality is, the only way changes will happen in anybody's life 
is faith based in truth that leads to godliness. Please remember that if you have an unsaved loved one that's battling something in the flesh. I know we get excited when all of a sudden Fred tells us, oh man, I haven't, I haven't drank in a week. Oh, amen. Oh, good. Fred's on the right path. Did Fred get born again and saved in Christ? Nope, but he's on the right path. He's on the right path for a while. I've seen this in marriages too where it's like, okay, all of a sudden you're, you're on the urge of, of, of contacting the divorce lawyer and then you have a romantic getaway that weekend and you come back and how's it going? Oh, it's great. Amen. I've learned now in marriage counseling, I ask this, so what changed? I don't know if anything changed, but I just feel like we're on the right path. Yeah, for about a week. Because unless you have faith based in truth, which leads to godliness, it's not going to change. And that's what we need to understand. People need to be born again in Christ. Changed from the inside out. And that's when it truly changes and it happens. So when you have faith that leads to truth, which leads to godliness, now we get to verse 2. Look what we get. We get hope. The world wants hope. They want hope. Romans 15, 13, God is the God of hope. And not just hope. Now, please remember what the biblical definition of hope is. We use the word hope almost synonymous with wish. Oh, I hope I do good on that test. Oh, I hope things work out well for you. In the Bible, hope is not wishing. Hope is strong confidence. So when you say in the Bible, the hope of eternal life, this is not, oh, I hope I make it. Oh, I really hope I'm in. No, I have strong confidence that right now that I'm a sinner saved by grace through Christ Jesus and I have entrance into heaven. I'm not wishing. I know it. That's what the word hope means. So the God of hope, when I look at somebody and say, listen, I have hope that God can move in this life and take this mess and fix it out. It doesn't mean I'm wishing it can happen. I know that God can move in your life. Please understand the depth of the word hope and just catch yourself because I find myself doing it too. I use the word hope like wish. Boys will come up to me and say something like, oh, I got a test, Dad, will you pray? So we'll pray. And I'm like, hey, I hope you do well. I'm wishing they do well. No, I, I, it, we, we just use that word. But understand the biblical background of what it is. Please notice the hope of eternal life. Eternal life. That's a deep word. And, and to be quite honest, eternity is something that we can't grasp. I, I, I've heard so many different analogies on eternity, and they're all the best we can do. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said one time, every analogy fails. Because we just can't. I mean, have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to somebody? You tried the egg, you tried the apple. You can't explain the Trinity. You just can't. How would you explain eternity? We, we can't grasp eternity. I'm looking at the clock right now, and I got, what, 743 I know in the back of my mind, i got about 12 minutes. Because then I need to close with prayer, etc. If not, I'll have people lined up at that door at 8 o'clock. Everything is based on time. So the concept of eternal life, we cannot grasp. We cannot grasp in any way whatsoever. And please note the idea of eternal life. I just want to share a couple verses with you. Revelation 13.8. It says right here, The Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. See, this plan of Christ dying for our sins was taken care of from the foundation of the world. Please never look at Genesis 3, the fall of man, and think God in heaven said, oh no, what am I going to do? He knew before Adam and Eve were created that there was going to have to be a sacrifice for sins. There was a plan already. 
We're surprised. Do you realize that you're the only one surprised when you sin? I'm not surprised you sin because you have sin nature. God's not surprised you sin. You are. I am. I'm surprised when I sin. I'll do something. It's like, I can't believe I did that. Did I think I was past that? No, but God before the foundation of the world knew I was going to need a Savior. What about Ephesians 1.4? He chose us and Him before the foundation of the world. I was chosen before the foundation of the world. That's mind-blowing to me. God is so far above time that He was already choosing me before the foundation of the world for salvation. So the concept of eternal life is absolutely amazing. And before you then start thinking, well, is it true? Look at the next phrase of verse 2. Who cannot lie? <laughs> Promise before time began. Oh, wow. Just, just chew on that. That's something that you just chew on for a while. It's not something you necessarily teach on. It's something that I hope you go home and you just say, wow. I have a strong confidence in eternal life. God will not lie to me about this promised before time began. But now verse 3, it has been made manifest. It has now been revealed through the preaching of God's word. So this is a concept that's been around since before the foundation of the world. But now it's being made manifest. Now it's being revealed. And how is it being revealed? Verse 3, through the preaching of God's word. Please don't think once again I'm taking away things from worship or fellowship or any of that. But the more I study the Bible, the more I see the emphasis on God's word. That's the emphasis. That's what we need to make the emphasis. And that's where it goes back to what the verse that I referenced to you earlier about uh, 1 Timothy. Where about devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. That's a powerful thing. God's word doesn't return void. And, and the longer I do this, the more I do this, the more I try to just be in the word. Just reading things and just reading things and saying, okay, Lord, what are you trying to tell me here? And there's a power in that. So it's the preaching which was committed to Paul according to the commandment of God our Savior. He had quite the commitment. He had quite the calling with this. And what a blessing that is. Let's pause real quick. Any quick questions, comments about anything here before we move on? John. Yeah, and that's what's neat. Yeah, that's at the end of John, is that concept of how much goes on. Yeah, that's John twenty one twenty five, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the word itself, the world, excuse me, itself, could not contain the books that would be written. Yeah, I mean, because you have these verses in the Gospels that are just so vague, and, and Jesus healed many. That means every single person, there's a story behind that healing. It's just fascinating to stop and think about. Fascinating. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Yeah, Betsy. Um, I heard one of the definitions for biblical hope is a divine guarantee. So I like to put that in wherever it says hope so that I don't think yeah. it's Yeah. Yeah. A divine guarantee. Yeah. It, it's, it's God saying it's going to happen. And we need to, we need to realize the confidence of that. And it's not a false, blind divine guarantee. And studying out 66 books of the Bible and seeing how God moves and says, God, you're good. You're good. And, and it can even go back to Job. Though you slay me, I'll still praise you. You're still good. 
It can go back to, to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Throw us in there. If we make it, great. If we don't, God's still good. I mean, there's just hope is still confidence that if it doesn't turn out the way I want, God is still good. God is a different definition of good sometimes than I do. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay. Titus, verse 4. True Son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. I love these little details, and I can't, this is not my original point, Damien Kyle, anybody that's uh, followed any type of uh, Calvary Chapel teachers may have heard of Damien Kyle before, great teacher. He made this point, I thought this is wonderful. Grace and peace is Paul's standard uh, greeting. And I looked it up, and he uses that in ten other of his epistles. He just says grace and peace. Okay. Now, there's a great little teaching on grace and peace. If you want peace, you've got to have grace first. That's just the way it works. You can't have peace without grace. Grace literally means gift of grace, benefit, getting what you don't deserve. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve eternity. I don't deserve forgiveness of sins. By God's grace, he gives it to me. It's a beautiful picture. When I have his grace, then I have peace. So I can't have peace without grace. Once again, we're back to our analogy that we mentioned earlier. People that want peace in their life need to find the grace of Jesus. You all know people that are looking for peace. They're not going to find it in anything other than Christ. So therefore, grace and peace are such a beautiful picture. But it's really interesting, and this is what Damien Kyle said, that in the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus, Paul adds mercy. He doesn't do that in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. He doesn't do that in those. It's only to Titus and Timothy that Paul says grace, mercy, and peace. Now, why is that? Coming from a pastoral standpoint, this is, this is my take on it. One, to be in any type of ministry, you need to have a lot of mercy. You need to have a lot of mercy to other people, first off. Mercy is what? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is being able to look at that person that comes into office and realize they have totally, completely, utterly messed up. And the world has turned their back on them. But can you still point them towards Jesus Christ and say, listen, you're a mess. But God still loves you through repentance of sins. That's mercy. So you have to have a lot of mercy in dealing with other people in ministry. Number two, as, as a pastor and any type of ministry leader, you want people to have a lot of mercy with you. Because you're going to mess it up. You're going to complete... I mean, I can tell you right now, you know, over the 20 plus years I've been out here, there have some, been some pretty big things I've really dropped the ball on. And I'm thankful for God's mercy. And I'm thankful for other people showing me mercy. I'm disqualified in nearly every way it feels like to be a pastor. And so therefore, I think it's so neat that Titus and Timothy, given this very big responsibility, Paul throws in that one extra word to them, mercy. So that way we can sit here in leadership and stop and say, oh, yes, Lord, thank you for your mercy because I don't deserve this. And I can show that mercy to other people. And if you're out there thinking, well, I'm not in any type of ministry position, please remember the Bible says every member of the body of Christ is in ministry. You have some type of ministry God has given you. So therefore, please walk in mercy towards others as hopefully people walk in mercy towards us. Verse 5 is where we're in tonight. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So starting next week in verse 6, we'll go through the character of what God is looking for for godly people. But verse 5 is one of those verses that's really easy just to read over and, and not realize the depth of it. And I just want to hit some things in just this one verse. For this reason, I left you in Crete. A specific calling. I left you. 
please understand you have a specific calling. God has a plan for you. Now, when we hear that, we start thinking, I don't know why. I was, oh, Africa? No, God's not calling me to Africa, okay? Sometimes my specific calling is to love my wife as Christ loved the church and raise my seven children in Christ Jesus because I have no greater joy than to hear my kids walk in the truth. Sometimes my specific calling is just be a witness to that neighbor that is very difficult. Sometimes my specific calling is to stop and say, I'm going to go teach Sunday school. Sometimes my specific calling is just from what we would consider a very mundane, ordinary thing where I hear these testimonies of, I went to Antarctica. Wow. And I'm just in Henry County. Oswald Chambers has this wonderful theme in a lot of his devotions. He says, be careful of getting worked up over the mundane ordinary. Because he says, in the mundane ordinary, it shows your depth in the Lord. Just another day of laundry. Just another day of dishes. Just another Sunday where I teach the three to five-year-olds in the back. Yeah, what an amazing calling. Please remember that. You have a specific calling. I left you in Crete. Next thing, that you should set an order. Order. There's an order to church. Now that really bothers some people. I've run into some people, order. We want free for all. We just want, come in and whatever. When you read through the Bible, you see God being a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, be careful with the idea of order than letting the pendulum swing too far. I've been in churches where they got order down, but they've quenched the Spirit. I've been in churches where, yeah, the, the Holy Spirit is definitely there, but there's also confusion. I hope as we go through Titus, we will see the beautiful balance of Holy Spirit-led order. Because things are lacking, and I've already mentioned this before, out of joint. We need to get them back in place. Every church has things that are out of joint. And we all have things that we need to work on in any situation. Appoint elders. Appoint, please note, not elected. They're appointed. I think that's important. I have seen churches where the board consists of the people that we look at and say, well, they're the most intelligent, the smartest, the whatever, and so therefore they should be on the board. If you would look at the leadership in the early church, we're talking a lot of fishermen, a lot of people like that that don't have the pedigree, the education, whatever, but they had the character and they had the calling. So please note God appoints elders, and please also note the word elders is plural, Plural. We'll get to that later on too. And every city as I commanded you, commanded, there is an order of responsibility. There is an order. And if you go back, remember in our study through the book of Numbers, um, there was a very detailed order of responsibility. And I know some people struggle with that. I know there's just some people that, my goodness, they hate being told in any way whatsoever what to do. But yet when I read through the Bible, God says, trust me in this, that when I give an order, when I give a, a situation that says this is what's going to be best for the body of Christ, boy, it's best to obey it because it's going to be worthwhile. So Titus, I hope, is a blessed book for you. Next week we'll pick it up in verse 6. We'll go through the character of those that are called. Then we call them elders, which also then creeps us into chapter 2 as well as we get into people that may not be called to be an elder, but there still is a calling in their ministry as well. We'll see how far we get next week with that. 
Please remember, Titus took us under four minutes to read. I don't say this to convict. I don't say this to push. I don't say any of that. I want it to be a spirit-led. But if that's something you struggle with, is the reading of God's word, please understand the amount of time that is needed. And if you're saying, I'm not a reader, you can find these things and they can be read to you. Read to you as well. So I just encourage you to be blessed by that. Uh, and way of announcements, uh, Operation Christmas Child going on. I believe the boxes are due November 11th. I don't have the information right in front of me. Uh, you can go back there, grab the box, pack the box, fill the box up. Church takes care of the shipping. You can fill out also a prayer card as well where you can send a prayer. I had a real neat testimony about that today where the people then can receive the boxes and know that people are praying for them. And they can also contact back if you want. If you're a little leery about putting your address on there to combat, contact back, put the church's address and your name and we'll make sure that that comes to you if it comes in that way as well. Once again, church takes care of the shipping and blesses a child all over the world with Christmas, but most importantly, the gospel. And you've heard me mention before, if you're involved in the public school system, uh, you can take boxes, fill those up, and the church will take care of the shipping that as well. Please remember, a week and a half ago, we had three people get baptized, Piper, uh, Kyle, and Cody. Uh, continue to keep them in prayer. It's just to encourage them in their walk in relationship with Christ. And uh, I believe that's the main stuff that's going on right now in this season. So, would you guys stand with me as we close out in prayer? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for being alive and active. Now let us go out and live it. Not just be a hero, but be a doer of it, Lord. And let us really chew on that. I just, I just really want us to chew on the eternal life that you cannot lie that was promised to us. Let us remember that in every trial and tribulation we face this week. You're a good God. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.